Well, in the last nine years, I have, uh, I, I believe, preached a sermon series uh, on the family or the home uh, four times. As a matter of fact, one of those was 16 messages long, a long series. So I've done a lot of preaching here on the home, a lot of preaching on the family, and yet with all I've done, I've done on that, I don't think I have ever preached just one sermon on the family. I don't think I've ever had just a, a single sermon that was on the home. And I mean, part of it is because, gosh, there, I mean, there's just so much there. I mean, from oneness to the role of the husband and wife, communication, forgiveness, sex, money, in-laws, children and parenting, blended families. I mean, and those are just the headliners. I mean, it gets a whole lot more than that. And, and the good news is, the exciting thing is that Scripture actually gives Detailed instruction in every one of those things. It gives detailed instruction in every, every one of those areas. So it actually is quite easy to put together a 16-message a series, a 20-message series, because there's so much there and we need it. But, but that would also seem to imply that it's about impossible to boil it down to one message. That, that one message would give us what we need in the home, and yet God can do just that. Oh, we need the detailed instruction. We need to know what He says in all those different topics and areas. But folks, God has given the home, God has given you and me, one guiding principle that impacts every area of the home, every decision, every situation, every problem, every opportunity, every strength, every weakness. One guiding principle for every part of the home. As a matter of fact, one word. One word will revolutionize your home. Let's see what that one word is. Would you turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. Ephesians 5 verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you there on the row. If you can't reach it, somebody will hand it to you. But I want everybody to be able to study along. We're going to look at one verse, but then we're going to be kind of looking at a variety of verses in Ephesians 5 through the morning. So leave your Bible open, sitting there on your lap. Ephesians 5, verse 21. You see it there. It's a short verse, pretty simple verse. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Our one word for the home is submission. Not a very popular word in our culture, is it? But please note, it is also not a word just for wives. Look at what it says there in 21. Submitting to one another. This is something that we all do. Verse 21 is kind of a bridge between where we've just been and and where we're going. Where we've been, if you were studying through Ephesians, verses 15 to 21 are about being filled in the Spirit. To be filled is to be controlled. What does it look like? How are we to be controlled by the Spirit day in and day out? And as you get to verse 19, you'll look there, you'll see Paul starts to give evidences of being filled in the Spirit. I mean, don't you want to know? Man, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I controlled by the Spirit? How would I know that? And and Paul shows us three things. He says, if you're filled with the Spirit, these three things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to sing praises to God. Now, I know some of us, well, you know, I'm not, not much of a singer. That's not my personality. That's okay. This isn't about you. We're not talking about being filled with our personality. We're not being controlled with our personality. We're talking about being controlled with the 
personality of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit's in control of your life, the song is coming out. Evidence of being filled with the Spirit. We're going to sing praises. Number two, we're going to give thanks. And number three, we are going to submit to one another. So as Paul introduces this idea of submission, he's talking about all of us. The the Spirit-filled life, how we live and relate in the spiritual family. How we live and relate in the church with one another. We submit. Now, with that thought on our mind... He now begins to take us to the home and says, you know, we talk about all of our relationships, but where do we live most of our life? Man, we live it with a family. Well, what does submission look like there? And from 522 through chapter 6, verse 4, he says, hey, wives, let's talk about what submission looks like for you. Let's talk about husbands, what submission looks like for you. Children, what does submission look like? Parents, parents, yeah, what does submission look like for a parent. And so he walks us through developing this key character of our lives. Now again, submission not not a very popular word. We don't we don't like that word in our culture, especially as it relates to the husband and the wife. And we've made this an issue of equality, haven't we? You know, if two people are equal, then, then one shouldn't have to submit to the other. There's something wrong with that idea, that, that word and that concept. And so we look at the scripture and say, you know, clearly this was written by cavemen. Uh, you know, we've advanced past that. We've gotten better than that. The problem is in scripture, this isn't about equality. There, there's not a question, there's not a challenge of, of equality when we talk about headship or, or submission. And I think one of the best places we see that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Look at this verse up here on the scripture. It says, man is the head of the woman, or I guess it should say, and the caveman is the head of the woman. Look at this. And God is the head of Christ. Folks, there's a parallel structure there. So whatever we're saying about this relationship between man and woman, we're saying the exact same thing about God and Christ. So if over here we're saying, now women, according to the Word of God, you're just a little less than. Man is better than you. A man is superior to you. Then that means we would also be saying that the Father is better than the son. The son is less than the father. The son is inferior to the father. And if that's what we're communicating in that moment right there, we are actually committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We are denying the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit that the father and the son are absolutely equal. By the way, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unpardonable sin. So the Word of God is not communicating, as is evidenced by what we know between the Father and the Son, it is not communicating that there's an equality issue. Folks, when we look at God's Word to the husband and wife, our struggle is not with equality. Our struggle is with sin. And we can go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve choose sin over God. And as that choice takes place, God comes to Adam, comes to Eve and says, man, you know what? I told you not to go there. I told you not to do this. Now look what's going to happen. Now that you've introduced sin, let me show you how it's going to impact the world. Let me show you how it's going to impact your personal lives. Let me show you how it's going to impact your marriage, how it's going to impact your relationship with each other. And in walking through this detail of how sin is going to touch us, he says this to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.16. Look at this. Your desire will be for your husband 
and he will dominate you. That word desire in the Hebrew language is a negative word. It has the idea of of a desire to conquer, a desire to to supersede. It's saying, Eve, now that that sin is in you, the relationship and in the marriage, Eve, your natural tendency is going to be to want to conquer your husband's position. It's going to be to want to take that position of headship and control it. And Adam, instead of using that position to love and to serve your wife, you're going to use it to dominate her. You're going to take that position God has given and use it to get your own selfish way. So folks, when we see a battle in the marriage for control, when we see that that battle for, for who's going to be right, it's not evidence of an equality struggle. It's not evidence of trying to get to the right answer. It's evidence of our sin. This is sin right here. Here's the definition. I want it my way. That sin. I want it my way. And so the question that you and I have to answer is, what do I want to be the guiding principle in my home? Do I want sin to guide my home? Or do I want the Spirit to guide my home? Now, guys, sitting here in this room, we say, well, that's a dumb question. That's got an obvious answer. Well, we want the Spirit to guide our home. Folks, it's not a dumb question. And the answer is not obvious. It is quite possible to come in here and sing praises and give money and listen to a sermon and say, God bless you and love you and walk out of here and then live every moment in the home driven by this one thing. I want it my way. We're going to do it my way. How do we want our home to be driven? You know, when we live in our home with this constant principle of my way, you know, a lot of us say, well, we have a communication problem. No, each of you wants it your own way. So you're not going to hear the other. You're not going to understand it. I don't even care about understanding you. The only real issue here is that you understand me and we get it my way. And once communication breaks down, everything breaks down. Anything can become a problem then. From sex to money to parenting to to decision making, it all becomes a problem when we want it our way. Even if your way's right. The issue is not if you got the right answer. Driven by sin is not going to work. When we're driven by the Holy Spirit, then what happens is through submission, we begin to yield to the other. How do I serve you? How do I understand who you are and what you want and what would bless and serve you in this moment? When the home is driven by the Spirit, it serves each other. And so now with this thought of submission on the table, Paul carries us into the home. The, the, these first priorities in life, these, these, uh, these God-ordained relationships that we call the family. And he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to all submit to one another, but let's start with the relationships we're in each and every day. And so he carries us, first of all, 522, to the wives. Look what it says there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Now, look back again at verse 21. We're talking about being filled with the Spirit, what it looks like when the Spirit's in control of our life. We move into verse 22 and look at the first two words, wives submit. The dominating character quality of a believer is submission. And now he comes to the home and he says, hey wives, would you model this for us? You know, every 
life intersects at the mom. Every life intersects at the wife. Ladies, I've put this command out there for the entire church body, the entire Christian family, and I really think we got a chance of getting far down the road. If ladies, would you model this in the home? Would you show us what this looks like? And please notice, ladies, why you submit. It's not because he's right. It's not because he's stronger. It's not because he's smarter. It's not even because he deserves it. It says very clearly there, you submit because he is the governmental head of the home. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the governmental head? It means that as this unit, the family, as this family goes to stand before God, the husband answers for the family before God. He has to give an account for the character of this home. He has to give an account for the direction and directions that this home took. He stands before God for all of that. Now, every member of the home has their own commands. Every member, you know, the wife is to submit, the children are to obey, and that's just inside the home. There's all kinds of other commands. Of course, the children are called to come to the Lord. Now, the husband, you can't make all those things happen. You can't make them be that and do that, nor should you try to make them be that and do that. What you are held accountable for is, did you create an environment where it could happen? Did you create an environment where it was as easy as possible for your wife to submit? Did you create an environment where the the children want to obey, want to come to the Lord? Did you create an environment where the home wanted to seek God's guidance, God's wisdom, and, and dependence upon Him? Did you create that environment? That's what being the head means. So wives, when you are competing for that, imagine this. Imagine that you're trying to push Him aside and say, God, I want the judgment. God, I want all of this to fall on me. No, ladies, let him take it. Let him carry this. You know, it is a a great opportunity. It is also a heavy responsibility. And for him to be most successful at it, ladies, he needs you to come alongside and give support and give encouragement. Don't compete for the position, but help him do well in the position. Your life, it is your home That is best served when you do that. That word submit literally means to line up under. Line up under him. Because he's right? No. Because he has to answer for it. Line up under him because he deserves it? Not all the time. But because he has to answer for it. Now, when we talk about this, it kind of leads to an obvious question. (laughs) Lord, what if he's wrong? I mean, okay, I'm lining up under him, but he's actually going in the wrong direction. He's actually making a bad decision. Guess what? Line up under him. You're not lining up under him because he always makes good decisions. You will sooner or later line up under a bad decision. Safest place in the world to be. Oh, gosh, that needs some definition, doesn't it? It's safe because in that place you can say, God, you did this. You put me here, I'm doing what you called to do, so now it requires your protection, your provision, your care, your fix. But yes, in that position, there can be a moment where it's uncomfortable. It can be, it, it can, there can be a moment where the wrong thing was done and, and you're paying for it, the family's paying for it, we're feeling it. 
But guess what? Competing and fighting to get to the right one's not going to get the home where it needs to be either. Wives, you're not submitting because he deserves it or because he's right. You're submitting because before your husband and before your kids and before a church body that desperately needs it, you're modeling submission. And you're showing that you trust God and you trust his way. So as the woman is called, the wife is called, filled in the spirit to submit, Paul says in the home, this is what it looks like. Submission, the very thing that we're called to. Now husbands, you too submit. We don't think about that. I think one of our struggles with this is because the word for man seems so nebulous. But the word for the woman seems so concrete. Well, let's make it more concrete. Men, how do you submit to your wife? Look what it says here in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I'm going to say that the operative word for a man, the operative word for the husband in submitting in the marriage is the word sacrifice. Men, you are to sacrifice to serve her needs and to care for her needs. The moment you say, I do, the moment you head back down that aisle, you become a lifelong student of your mate. You spend every day, you spend every bit of your life studying her. How does she hear? How does she understand? What is she like? What is it she doesn't like? What are her relational needs, her emotional needs, her mental needs, her spiritual needs? And and God has designed these complex women really incredible so that if you get close to really understanding her, all the settings change. A whole new default system goes into place. And you have to start all over. But that's okay. That's okay. That's what sacrifice does. And you're going to study, how does she receive love? How does she feel love? Not how do I like giving it. Not, Not what's comfortable for me in giving it. But how does she actually receive and experience being loved? And men, as we start to get the answers to all these things we're studying and learning about our wives, we then move to serve and to meet those needs to the point of sacrifice. Man, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. If your needs are not being met, God's okay with it. I don't think that's true of the children. I don't think that's true of the wife. God's not okay with their needs not being met. But He gave you men the responsibility to serve to the point of sacrifice. Sacrifice means what? I've lost something, right? I was doing, 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 so something didn't get done. What didn't get done? Me. I didn't get done. It it didn't happen for me. My needs aren't being met. God says, that's all right. Keep loving. Keep serving to the point of sacrifice. When you and I say, hey, God, what's love to look like for my wife? He points to Christ on the cross. And he says, your love should look like that. We become a student of her. Serving and meeting her needs to the point that it's as if our own life is lost. Now, as Paul wraps it, or let me go back. When men, when wives are called to line up under us in a decision that they don't agree with, you should be sensitive to that. Now, I'm not saying don't lead. If you have prayed, if you have sought God and you've worked this out and, and, and you've come to a place where you believe this is what we've got to do, this is where we've got to go, then lead. But understand, when you lead in a way that is different from who she is and where she is and what she thinks, that's going to create a need, isn't it? 
That's going to create an anxiety. That's going, to, that's going to create a loss. And we're called to be very sensitive to that. Not called not to lead. We're called to be very sensitive to that and figure out, okay, while I'm leading in this direction, how do I serve the need that's been created in her life? Guys, do you ever stop and think, gosh, this poor lady's been stuck following me. I mean, God's put her there. God's stuck her there to follow me. That just surely can't be a great thing all the time. I mean, guys, you surely don't think it the end all be all is to follow you everywhere. That that's always going to just turn up roses. No, it doesn't. It doesn't turn up roses to follow me everywhere. I turn down some wrong roads. I do some stupid things. And she's stuck following. Don't we need to be sensitive to that? God's called this woman to follow me. You know, I always, I pity, I pity the man who will go before God thinking that he was given headship, that he was given leadership so he could get what he wants. Remember, he pointed to Jesus. Do you ever see anywhere in Jesus' life it being about what he wants? Him, him getting his way. Man, what, men, we better be sensitive to what our wives think. We better want to know that. Because guys, you know what? Sometimes she just has a lot better pulse on things than we do in the home. She, has, she not only has a pulse, she has a pulse on the decisions that are being made and how it's affecting everybody and what it's doing. We better be factoring in what she thinks. And you know what? I think in a good marriage, there is a lot of dialogue, isn't there? There's give and take, there's back and forth, there's hearing, there's understanding. Sometimes we actually roll with the way the wife thinks because you know what? It, it impacts her more. She has better insight on this than I do. And I think a lot of times, you know what? We actually do come to the same page. We actually are thinking and doing the same thing. But in those places where it's different, men, you're called to step up and lead. Given your wife's security that you're seeking to follow and honor God in this decision and under that, wives, you are to line up. Now, chap, or verse 31 kind of wraps up this section. In some ways, it just kind of summarizes. And in other ways, it kind of pulls it together and elaborates. But he, he says in 31, 32 there, he says to the, to the wife again, hus, or wife, as you submit to him, respect him. I know how I've wired this man. I know how a sinful world has affected him. And a great need in his life is to be respected. Ladies, he needs somebody that still thinks he has big muscles. He needs somebody that thinks he's the best thing since sliced bread. You know, ladies, we're, not, we're really pretty poor at communicating this. A lot of times when we're acting our very worst, it's because that's where we're most insecure. We're most insecure with who we are and what we're accomplishing in the world or what we're not accomplishing in the world. Sometimes when we're acting the most disrespectful, it's because we're getting our teeth kicked in. And God says, would you be the one person who gives that respect? His number one cheerleader in life. And ladies, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. There's a lot of ways to show respect. Kind words, certain activities. But I want to tell you something about your husband. He will ultimately have a hard time feeling respect apart and distinct from the sexual relationship. If he doesn't feel that he's desired and that he's appreciated in that way, he will have a hard time taking the other places that you're seeking to show respect and tie it together and feel respected. God says, I know how he's wired. Respect him. 
to the men. He says the same word he says in verse 25. I focused on the word sacrifice or gave himself up. But you see that word love. Men, you are to love her like she is the absolute treasure of all treasures. As your wife watches your passion, your commitment to her, your activities to serve her needs, she should just look at you and think, gosh, I must be like the, the, the prize of all prizes, the queen of all queens. I mean, I must be incredible to watch the way this guy is loving and protecting and serving and caring for me. We are to love her. We yield to her need to know how special she is. And you know what, guys? God has given us a place where there is an intimacy and a closeness that we share with nobody else in the world, and that is that sexual relationship. And you know what, guys? You and I have the ability to walk into that moment, and when it's over, our wife feels more alone than when it before it started. Love was not shared in that moment. Selfishness was met in that moment. How do we do that? How do we go in this moment where they're supposed to be giving and sharing and intimacy and and we walk away and she's more alone? Are you loving her? Does she, can, can she even for a second doubt your love for her? She should no more ever doubt your love than you and I do when we look at Jesus on the cross. Okay, we've covered a lot. We've got to hurry now. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. How do children submit? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Obviously, the operative word for children, the way they submit is to obey. I love this word obey. I've talked about it several times before. The way God picks this word shows just how insightful, how practical God is in understanding who we are. He says, kids, here's how you submit. You obey. That word obey in the Hebrew language means to strain to hear. To strain to hear. How do you get obedience out of a word that means straining to hear? Well, think about it. Have you ever disciplined a child and heard these words? I didn't hear you. I didn't know. I didn't understand. Well, what God is saying with this word is, it's your job to hear. It's your job to know. It's your job to understand. So if you're on the other side of the house and you're playing or doing whatever you're doing and you even think you heard mom's voice, you are to jump up, fly straight away to mom and say, did you speak? (laughs) Did you speak? Yes, yes, yeah. We needed something to get us out of that first part of the sermon, didn't we? (laughs) Did you? You know, Mom, if you spoke, I want to make sure I got it. I want to make sure I understood it so I can do it. That's what the word means. That's what God put right there. And obviously, as we grow up, we move, uh, we transition from childhood to adulthood. The word changes a little bit. It moves from obedience to honor. You know, I don't obey my mom and dad anymore. And, And a big reason for that is... My mom and dad don't send directives down anymore. But you know what? When I'm in the room with them, the room with them, I yield the floor. As a matter of fact, if it's my family and my two parents, there's eight of us in the room. Well, I'm responsible for six of the people in the room. 75% of this is, is my responsibility. But when I'm in that room, I yield 
to them. Showing respect, showing appreciation for who they are, for what they've been. Folks, God loves when we honor authority. Honor the position, the positions He's established. And you know, that you see there, it says, this is the only command that comes with a promise. Man, you get this, kids, and it goes well the rest of life. Why is that? If we learn to obey mom and dad, why does it go well the rest of life? Really, folks, follow the logic in this. God is saying, hey, young people, you've entered this home. This is your laboratory. This is where you prepare for life. And he gives them one command. Here's your responsibility. Obey mom and dad. Now, if you can learn to do this, if you can realize that obeying me is not based on the deservedness of others. Because mom and dad, we don't, we don't always deserve to be obeyed, do we? We don't always act very honorable. But if the child can learn growing up, obeying God is not about whether they deserve it. It's about trusting God's way and following in His way. Then we're going to learn to take on all the other commands of God that relate to people. And if we're living in that obedience, it's going to go well. But what happens? We don't often learn this in the home. And so then we go out into the world, we get all the other commands and all the other relationships, and we just, (laughs) I'm not forgiving you because you haven't changed and asked for it. I'm not serving you because I won't get anything back for it. Not being humble before you, you'll take advantage of me. I'm not loving you because you're not very lovable. And folks, we will walk around the people in our life, and we will justify ourselves in not obeying a single command of God because they don't deserve it. Well, you know what? You're right. They may not deserve it, but you're now living a life in full disobedience. So if you can learn right away, it's not based on deservedness. It's going to go well the rest of your life. And look how beautiful submission can be. And then lastly, parents, verse 4. How do parents, we don't think of parents submitting to kids. By the way, that doesn't mean giving them what they want. Parents, submitting to kids, what does that look like? And fathers, remember, folks, the word father, that's the governmental head. So it's not just talking to fathers. He represents the parents. This is mom and dad. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I've said here that submission looks like training with consistency and victories. Consistency and victories are my words, not the Scripture's words. That's what I'm getting out of exasperation. Now, the way we yield, parents, the way we submit to our kids is we recognize they need to be trained in the Lord, not me. They need to be trained in God's ways, not my ways. Now, that is a yielding. That is a submission because, honestly, I can't think of anybody better than me. I can't think of anybody's ways better than my ways. I can't think of anybody's ideas better than my ideas. That's what that kid needs to have. No, no, he doesn't. (laughs) He really doesn't. He needs God, and he needs God's ways. So I'm going to yield to training this child in him. And I'm going to do it in a way, the Scripture says, don't exasperate. Don't exasperate. Mom and Dad, we, get, we can be really inconsistent, can't we? I mean, you can have a child do the same activity, and one time we ignore it, one time we laugh at it, and the next time we punish it. How's a kid supposed to figure that out? What, what, what do you want from me? I get a different response every time. We're very inconsistent in how we parent. That's exasperating. No different than it is for you if you're working for somebody that is different every day. 
and you get a different directive every day and a different response every day. That's exasperating. That's frustrating. It's also exasperating if you never know if you win, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, if you never know, have I done? You know, think about it, folks. We can see what our kids do wrong. We can see that from a mile away. And we got a lecture that goes with it that's just as long. Do we see their good a mile away? Do we celebrate that good with the intensity and the length of time that we deal with what they've done wrong? I mean, do, do you, as an adult, do you want to live a life where you never know if you've actually, you know, done the right thing and, are, and somebody celebrates the right thing? No, that's exasperating. That's frustrating. And yes, we say good game and great report card. Yeah, but I'm talking about more than that. You know, when we've been on them about lying, you know, sometimes the little kid actually changes and starts to work really hard at telling the truth. Do we acknowledge that? Do we say that we've noticed that? Do we spend as much time noticing that as we did, calling him a little liar? Guys, it's got to be frustrating to never know if you can win. Folks, here's, when you think of being a parent and submitting, I want you to think about this thought. Think of how much parenting we do that is based on the mood we're in. I mean, this kid is trapped under your authority. He's trapped under your strength and he's trapped under your ability to take care of the finances. And yet, it is your mood every day that determines what he gets from his parent. How much of your parenting is based on the mood you're in? See, that's what we're submitting. What's happening here? It's too big, too important, too valuable. I can't let my mood be the guide of this. I've got to submit my mood. I've got to yield my move. And I've got to anchor and train and bring this kid up in the Lord with some consistency and some victories. Now, folks, I I realize a message like this especially covering so much uh, in a short amount of time, it raises more questions than it gives answers. It, it, it might give some direction, but then it just confuses a lot of side roads at the same time. And I would imagine we'd go around the room, we could have all kinds of questions, but my experience has been this. If we went around the room and everybody, well, here, here's the one question I have from today's message. I really believe that over 50% of those questions... Over half the questions would be a question somehow relating around this. When do I not have to submit? When do I not have to do that? Folks, can I challenge you not to run away from submission? I know they don't deserve it. I know they're not going to acknowledge what you're trying to be and do. I know they're not going to do what God's told them to do. There there are a hundred reasons to not yield. A hundred reasons to not submit. Could I give you one reason to submit? Because Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, yielded His needs yielded his body, yielded his life to serve your needs. And you didn't deserve it. That's the only reason I can think of why we would submit to all these people who don't deserve it.
Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that in everything you call us to be and do. And and Lord, you acknowledge. You acknowledge that what you've called us to be and do will cost. It will sometimes hurt. It, it, It will sometimes leave us feeling like our needs are not being met. There's nothing you've called us to be and do that you haven't done. Nobody in here has paid a higher price than Christ paid to meet the needs of those he loved. So Lord, I thank you not only for a command, but I thank you for modeling what it looks like. I thank you that you don't call us to be something more, to do something more than you yourself did. And Lord, when we're struggling with these people that we're called to love, to submit, to forgive, to serve, to set our mood and our emotions aside, that as we do this, that God, we keep our eyes trained on you the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And help us to realize you do understand where we are. You do understand where sin has broken the home. Broken the different ways that people are acting. Help us keep our eyes focused on you so we can navigate through these relationships and be right where you want us to be. We certainly need your help. And we praise you because you give it. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.